Hi, everyone. I can't tell you how excited I am for today's episode. I've been wanting to get today's guest, Christina Galbato, onto the show for over a year now. Christina is an incredibly successful entrepreneur who helps people build businesses through social media and online courses. What fascinated me about Christina from the outset was how she'd managed to build a hugely lucrative business while at the same time struggling with addiction, yet all the while maintaining this perfect facade on social media. She truly was hiding behind a smile. In this conversation, we spoke about what it's like being a high-functioning alcoholic and the lies that you tell yourself to stay in the delusion that everything's okay, the journey of recovery and the ups and downs that she's experienced with her mental health, why at almost three years sober, she's putting recovery above everything else. And finally, how doing the deep inner work has changed her perspective on dating and relationships. I absolutely loved this conversation and I know you will too. So with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is boss lady entrepreneur and sober sister, Christina Galbato. Christina is the founder of Create Her Empire, an online education company that helps creators build profitable businesses that go beyond brand collabs and pretty pictures. After building her own business as a travel and lifestyle influencer and working with brands like Ritz-Carlton, Lululemon, Mazda and more, she condensed her strategies into industry-leading online courses that have helped 10,000 students in 59 countries. Her courses have generated over 10 million in sales to date and she's been featured in publications like CNN, Bloomberg and Forbes for her expertise. Yet throughout all of this success, Christina was keeping a secret. She was hiding behind a smile. And she's here today to share her story. So without any further delay, dialing in from LA, I'd love to welcome Christina onto the show. Christina, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about one of my favorite topics, sobriety. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I'm so, so excited. When I reached out to you and you agreed to come on the show, I have to tell you, like, I was just so beyond excited. You're somebody that I've wanted to talk to for a very, very long time. So I can't thank you enough for being here today. Yeah, not I a problem. I appreciate that. I also know that the audience is going to get so much from hearing your story. So let's dive straight into it, shall we? Before we dive into the nitty gritty of our conversation today, I'd love to warm things up a little. So I'm going to ask you some nice, easy questions to let our audience get to know you a little bit better. So Christina, can we kick it off with, where did you grow up? 
What does an average day look like and what do you do for fun? Okay. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. So maybe a little bit different from your Australian audience, but that's on the West coast of the, of the U S spent 10 years in New York. And then now I'm here in LA. Okay. An average day for me looks like, well, first of all, probably like you, I take my morning routine very seriously. So I wake up at seven, I turn my phone on airplane mode before I go to bed. So I spend like the first hour and a half of my day just doing my like journaling, meditation practices, getting my workout in before I turn my phone back on, which has made a huge difference. Then I will go into my normal work day. I've been trying to get better recently at like working less, but more intentionally. So rather than spending like six hours at my desk, just working for like three or four, like very focused hours. A lot of what I do now is sort of reviewing like social content and marketing material for my company, working on other projects that I have. And then also trying to get better at reserving like the late afternoons for some of my other hobbies and making sure I'm spending time with friends and doing all the sobriety things. Mm, beautiful. My I love time that. routine needs to, needs to be locked in. So yeah, we're <laughs> absolutely right. If it's not, I'm exactly the same though. If I don't schedule in like time for self-care, time for connection, like it just doesn't happen. I think when you run Never. your own business, because you're so passionate about it, right? You can almost just get sucked into this vortex and then you realize that you haven't come up for air and <laughs> you haven't caught up with people. And totally. You haven't, like, all those and you're less things. productive too, which is like very yeah. counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah. So, so true. Okay. Now tell me, yeah. you kind of alluded to it, but what do you do mm -hmm. for fun then? What do I do for fun? Um, I love to travel. I definitely prioritize travel as like a, you know, once every two months kind of thing, like an international trip. I love to hike. I moved to LA in February, last February, like I said, and it's been so nice just like having accessibility to the outdoors that I didn't have in New York. So I love to hike, love to be outdoors, love to try out new restaurants and events with friends. I'm trying to find some like new hobbies as well. Recently, I've been wanting to try pole dancing. So I'll let you know how that goes. Maybe once the episode's live, I'll have some some content on my Instagram. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Good luck. Like, it seems like good strength, right? Okay. So I tried it. I'm a yoga teacher and okay, I yeah. we actually went all together to a pole dancing class uh -huh. towards the end of last year as a bit of a team building exercise. And oh my goodness, Christina, it is so hard like so I had no hard. we were all yoga and Pilates instructors and we were all struggling like it was just yes. it's just like different kind of strength and then you come away with all these bruises down your legs exactly and so much respect for anybody that can get on a pole a hundred percent take some moves. I told a guy recently I was like I really want to try and learn how to pole dance and he was like <laughs> Oh, and I was like, no, it's not sexual at all. Like, it's just like really hard. And also we can talk about this too, but it's like a big confidence builder, I feel like. So yeah. I'm excited mm. to hopefully try that soon. Also, okay. You must keep me posted. I can't wait to see the updates on Instagram. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you for sharing that. I'd love to dive straight into your photo now. Christina, I cool. asked you to bring in a photo today from a time in your life where you are hiding behind a smile. So mm -hmm. you were presenting one version of yourself to the outside world, but the reality was internally you were struggling. Mm -hmm. Could you please describe for our audience what the photo looks like and what yep. was actually going on for you at that time in your life? For sure. Okay. So the photo I sent in was from February, 2021. So that was two months before I actually got sober and stopped drinking. It's me in like a cute little dress in Tulum, Mexico, holding a glass of red wine, which was my drink of choice. And around this time was, and we can talk about my story, obviously with alcohol, but 
kind of just the compounding of years of a horrible relationship with alcohol and really like I want to say this was three days before I kind of had my like so-called spiritual moment of realizing that like I had no control over my drinking whatsoever. I was using a lot of like travel to sort of trying to escape myself. And on this trip really realized that I couldn't run away from myself anymore. and couldn't run away from the fact that I had no control over my relationship with alcohol. And so I don't know if you want me to talk about the kind of moment now, as far as when I realized I needed to stop drinking or... Go for it. Absolutely. Whatever feels natural. We can take this anywhere you like. Okay, cool. Yeah. So this trip, I was in Mexico with a friend for about a week, and then I was on my own for about five days after. And I was in a hotel. And this particular hotel that was in Tulum, you couldn't order bottles of wine to your room. So I just kept ordering glasses of wine to my room. Because again, no control whatsoever. And I was checking out, this is the last day of my trip, I was checking out of the hotel and the guy gave me a receipt as you do at checkout with everything that I had ordered. And it was like a CVS receipt of all these glasses of wine. <laughs> and you, I'm sure you could feel like the secondhand like shame, right? So um, that was like the first, I was like, oh, that's a little mm, concerning. And I signed it. And then I, as I was getting into the taxi, he called me back and said, oh, I forgot your receipt from last night. Again, more itemized lists of glass of wine. And it was like a mirror reflecting back to me because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of my drinking was done very, very much in isolation. I wasn't out partying. And I think when you're by yourself, you can justify anything to yourself and bad behavior just becomes normalized. And seeing that in like a receipt form, I think was like a mirror for me to Mm. kind of what I had become, quote unquote. And so I got into like the taxi on the way back to the airport and I was just like sobbing in the back of this taxi, hungover, obviously. The guy probably thought I was insane, like crying in the back seat, but I like knew in that moment that I had to actually face myself and made a plan to get home and start going to therapy. And that's what I did. And I finally stopped drinking like two months later. Wow. I will definitely get into, I want to understand like what, what, how do you put the pieces together to getting to this point of sobriety? But can mm-hmm. you share a little bit more, Christina, around what kind of drinking you did alone? Because I too, like at the, the last two years of my drinking, I started off as a very social party girl, yeah. binge drinker, as I think a yep. lot of us do. And totally. then those last two years were definitely majority of the time it was me alone or, you know, my my husband, now ex-husband, was was in the apartment, but he was in a separate area. And so I was really just doing this on my own. And what I would tend to do is because I found that I was really incapable of processing and feeling emotion until I had a drink. And then all of a sudden I would cry, I would pick up the phone, I would want to get talk to someone for 45 minutes, like have these DNM conversations and things that I just seemingly couldn't seem to do when I was sober. And I remember I'd wake up every day the following morning, checking my phone and looking at, oh my goodness, who did I call? Who did I text? That, like, they were the kind of behaviors that I had. What did it look like for you? Very, very, very similar. Minus I wasn't really calling anybody, but it was, I had the same situation where I was living with my ex-boyfriend and because of his like work schedule, he was typically asleep like when I was starting to drink at night. And so a lot of it, I hid really, really well. It was like super isolated. It would be, you know, four or 5 p.m. rolls around and I start drinking. The accessibility of like 
food and wine delivery now, I think is really, really harmful for people with substance use disorders because like it's thought I want to drink and then action like immediately. And it's like instant gratification. So I think that only contributed to it, but very much like alone, bottle, bottle and half a night and very isolated, very like deceitful people around me, lied a lot about it, hid things. And I just remember like towards the end, I realized I woke up one morning and I was like, I have not been not hungover in like more than 60 days to hit you. Yeah. For me, it was just very, very isolated. And from the outside looking in, nobody would have known, hey, so how did you maintain the facade? What were the things that you were doing to keep up appearances or hide behind a smile? I think it's so easy with social media now, you know, like you're presenting exactly what you want other people to see. You're using filters. You can come on and record something when you feel okay. You can, you know, highlight just a certain aspect of your, of your life. And not only that, but it's like the angle that you want someone to see that specific aspect at. So social media, it's pretty easy. And also I was really lying to myself a lot of it for a lot of it too. Like I thought, oh, I have, I have control over this. Like, this is just a normal part of who I am. There's nothing wrong with this until it hit me that it it wasn't normal. And also I think that I was in a pretty unique position with working for myself because not only could I control my schedule, like if I had a a real like nine to five job, for sure I would have been fired. (laughs) But I was working for myself so I could control when I worked. If I wanted to start working at 11 a.m., which I normally did, then that was totally fine. And I was in another privileged position as well because the majority of my business runs through paid marketing. And so a lot of our revenue is automated. And it doesn't require me necessarily to show up. So both of those things, I think, made it so that I didn't really have an impact, thank God, on my kind of business growth. Mm, and I was that, just very like, what's the what's the word? Functional? High functioning? Like so yeah. high functioning. Yeah. Mm. From a business perspective. <laughs> yeah. I really relate to that. I was working for a Fortune 500 company and I was traveling the world like 2019. I was in New York, Paris, London, all for work. And nobody would have really known what was going on because I was able to get up in the morning, you know, violently hungover, like on the inside, dying, wanting the world to open up and swallow me whole. But, you know, a few eye drops later, a couple of aspirin, you know, I generally force myself to get to the gym and just Mm -hmm. sweat out whatever I'd done, you know, whatever toxins I'd put into my system the night before. And then because I was able to show up, that was almost like for me, a tick of the box saying, well, you can't possibly be an alcoholic. You can't possibly yeah. have a problem because yeah. look at all the stuff you're achieving. Right. Did you have that same sort of monologue? Totally. I'm like, well, I'm showing up. I'm still making money. So like, it's not really impacting me in any way. And it's funny because I look back now at how my life is just like everything I get done today, how many friends I hang out with. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I really was suffering, even though I didn't realize it. And it's hilarious too, as you say, like the, the eye drops and stuff, because I remember at the time, like, oh, I I have it together, like, blah, blah. But I look back at pictures of myself and, like, of my face and, like, all of this, how swollen I was and how inflamed I was. And I just see, like, somebody that, like, clearly was in so much pain. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I can really relate to that. There's a, there's a photo of my intake when I went into rehab in February, 2020, and it's just unrecognizable, but yeah, yeah, we seem to for me anyway, I can only speak from my own experience, like removing alcohol was like the last thing I was willing to do. Like I was willing to try everything else. 100%. Yep. I looked around at everything else. (laughs) 
I'm like, surely it's not the bottle of wine. I'm drinking Could it possibly, possibly be? be that? No, no exactly. Of course not. <laughs> Christina, I really love to take it back now for a moment. I'd love to know a little bit more about little Christina, what it was like for you growing up as a child. And was there anything in particular that you think perhaps shaped the woman that you became or influenced your relationship with alcohol as you started to grow up? I would say, first of all, and the thing that I've discovered through recovery is that I don't have a ton of memories from my childhood. So every conclusion that I've kind of come to has been like piecing together different things. But what I will say is I grew up in with an amazing family, like very supportive family. Both parents were there for me. I never had to worry about like, you know, anything financially or anything like that, which is an interesting process in recovery because you see so many people that have been through so much and you go through this thing of like, how dare I, you know, end up like this or, you know, not be like so picture perfect and grateful for everything I had. But I will say, I think that I have always just naturally been a very, very anxious and somebody that has never historically into like literally the last two years felt very comfortable in my skin somebody that I would say in particular with relationships with men has always been just very like anxious. I've never had Trump or had the ability really until recently to like regulate my nervous system. And so I think that like when, when I was in high school and I've actually never talked about this, but that's fine. Um, in high school, I struggled a bit with like self-harm as a way to like kind of ease that like anxiety feeling. And then when I found alcohol, my, I believe my sophomore or junior year, I was like, oh yeah, this is it. Like, this is the thing where like my anxiety is soothed. I can quote unquote be myself. I can fit in like, this must be how everybody else is feeling. So that I think would probably be my, my origin story. And I'm still trying to like piece it together, you know, but I really think that like anxiety and inability to like regulate myself emotionally were kind of like the, the biggest things. Mm, yeah, look, thank you for sharing that. I know it's not easy. I also really relate to that. I, I, the self-harm piece was was part of my story in my teenage years, and that's also around the time that I discovered alcohol. I know for me it was almost like I had this inner critic. I, often, I call it the itty-bitty shitty committee, and, and that was so loud for a number of reasons. And alcohol was the only thing that I could find that would turn the volume down on that inner critic. And so I know for a lot of people who also experience anxiety, it's the same sort of thing. It's a, it's like a self-soothing thing. And that I think is a real difference for people who potentially develop unhealthy relationships with alcohol is the effect that it gives. Because you can speak to somebody who's a normal temperate drinker and they're like, oh yeah, I have a glass of wine. It's nice. You know, I might feel a bit warm and fuzzy. <laughs> You're like, well, that's interesting. Cause for me, I feel like Oh my God, like someone's yeah. given me like the elixir to life. Like I'm like, totally. oh my God, okay. Yeah, you know what I mean? And so it's really interesting just to highlight that point for people because I think most people assume that everyone feels the way they do. And whereas yeah. there's actually, there is quite a difference in the, mm -hmm. the impact and the effect that it can have on us. So totally. you discovered that alcohol had this almost like soothing, calming effect on you and, and helped you to regulate. Did you start drinking a lot from a young age or was it something that as you started to grow up, like how did it play out for you and what were your friends doing at the time? Yeah. So I started drinking in high school, 
pretty much from the beginning, if I'm looking back, like did not have a good relationship with alcohol. Like I've never had the off button that everybody else seems to have in high school, got into like a number of life threatening situations, just always was blacking out, always drank more than my peers. But I don't think I, I like took it very seriously is what I'll say. And then when I went into college, I found, I got into Greek life. So it's different in in the U S but like I was in a sorority and with Greek life, binge drinking, blacking out, doing ridiculous shit is just like encouraged sort of, at least it was in my circle. So like, and all of my friends drank a lot and we kind of just like encouraged each other. None of them are sober now and they were able to keep it to just um, college. But I think that that environment kind of just justified my drinking and perhaps sped it up as well because I repeatedly, looking back, saw myself turning to alcohol as a way to kind of protect myself from the shame of things that I did when I was drinking. So it's just the Mm -hmm. endless, never-ending cycle of chicken and egg. And then when I graduated college, I moved to New York City. And the first couple of years I was there, you know, my friends there were very much still partying, going out whole thing. But then everybody seemed to kind of move on from that kind of drinking. And I did as well. It wasn't that I was going out anymore. It was then that it kind of gradually turned into the isolation, mostly me alone type of thing, because I just wasn't, you know, done with that method of self-soothing. And I think what's interesting too, is as you're you're bringing up the idea of of self-soothing, I think the thing that a lot of people get wrong about addiction of any kind is that Alcohol was actually a solution for a while until it became the problem. And a lot of people think that like it is the main problem. It's only a symptom of the problem. And like it really served its purpose for a very long time for me until the substance itself became problematic. Mm. Mm. It works until it doesn't anymore. I really, really get that. And that can be, like you said, with any form of addiction, you know, things can actually really help us for a period of time. I was just having this conversation with somebody this morning who's trying to give up the vape. And I said, what if what if that's the crutch that you need right now while you're doing all of this other stuff? You know, of course we need to address it at a certain point, but it's, it's interesting the things that we bring into our life at certain times and, and when the difference between somebody who can just stop and then those of us who can't and where it starts to become all-consuming and the consequences. So Let's talk about that now. What were some of the consequences of this escalation in your drinking behavior? Mm -hmm. I would say the last couple of years, the biggest consequence is probably just to my, not necessarily to my work. I would say my physical health suffered a lot in the last couple of years. You know, I definitely put on weight, which obviously isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I just wasn't like taking care of myself. I wasn't going to the gym anymore. I had zero mental health practices whatsoever. I didn't know myself internally whatsoever. I was kind of just like bumbling through life, unaware of (laughs) any of my thoughts or patterns or anything. Um, My relationship for sure suffered at the time uh, as well. I would say, you know, my confidence just was decimated. And Mm. obviously, you know, if I had been going out, I'm sure there would have been many, many other repercussions for being out and drinking like that. But luckily, quote unquote, in that sense, I was just doing it alone. Help me understand, Christina. For those of you who who know who you are, they'll know this incredible empire that you've built. Mm -hmm. How were you doing both at the same time? Like I said, I think that 
it just helped a lot that I was lying to myself that I had a problem. I had control over my own schedule so I could start working, you know, at 12 noon if I wanted to. With social media, you can control what everyone else sees. If I was going into an office job, no one could really control anything. But I do look back at like some of my, you know, Instagram stories or like posts from then, from that time period. And I see now that that person was like, something was, something was off. Yeah. But that's only with the the gift of time, you know. All right. Yeah, exactly right. And perspective. So your mental health, you mentioned you didn't have any sort of self-care practices. You didn't really know who you were. Can we talk about the anxiety a little bit more? I know for me that I actually didn't start experiencing anxiety until 2018. And that's actually around the time that my drinking really started to escalate. So for me, I think it was quite heavily alcohol induced. uh, And I was on an anti-anxiety medication, which was also an antidepressant, but I was drinking on it. So it wasn't really working. I had a couple of instances where I was hospitalized for panic attacks. And so for me, it wasn't until I actually stopped drinking that, you know, with the, with the guidance of my doctor, I was able to get off the medication. And now today, I very rarely experience anxiety. And if I do, I have the tools to be able to self-regulate in a healthy way. What did it look like for you? Did the anxiety peak as you started to drink more or how were you managing that? I think that by the time, this is just only in retrospect and like my kind of thoughts on it, but I think that when my drinking really escalated to the point where it would be very severe substance use disorder, I don't know if I was, I think that I was just in that cycle, sort of like I mentioned of like drinking, feeling crappy about myself, drinking to then soothe the shame that I felt. And it was just this endless cycle. And I can't really remember you know, like specific moments of feeling really anxious when I was in that time period. I think that towards the end, it was just very much about the physical addiction of the substance more than what I was trying to regulate necessarily, although I'm sure it was kind of both of those things. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. And what about your overall well-being? Like, did you experience any depression, loneliness? What was going on there? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Depression, for sure. Loneliness. And also, you know, it was just that disconnect between like who I want to be and who I was being and that frustration of like, why can't I be that person and looking at everything else except the, except the alcohol. And there's nothing that wears down your confidence more than not being able to show up as the person that you want to be and like repeatedly breaking practices to yourself. I think that's the biggest thing with addiction and sobriety is like the reason why your confidence grows when you get sober is because you're keeping a promise to yourself, right? Mm. You're keeping the promise of like, I'm not going to drink. And in that like alignment of who you want to be and what you're actually doing, that's where the confidence builds. And that's why addiction is like so decimating to your self-worth. It really does. It does. It just shatters your self-esteem, right? We, we, we walk into sobriety a lot of the time, completely broken humans. And I think that's the beauty, isn't it? Watching people, which I'm sure you get the, the privilege and the honor of doing now, watching other people get sober around you and seeing the lights come back on and slowly piece by piece that self-esteem rebuilds. It's just so magical to experience and watch. Yeah, it really is. So talk me through, because I I laugh when I ask this question because I was so the same. (laughs) What were some of the things you tried before you realized sobriety might be the answer? (laughs) Oh, like like ways to manage my drinking? 
Yeah. Oh, I got good ones. Oh my God. I have good <laughs> ones. This is like only things that people who are like sober or unfortunately and like active, you know, will understand. <laughs> but Okay. This is a pretty good one. And at the time I like didn't understand. Okay. So I was looking, I remember this was like 2020. I was, I was looking on Amazon and looking online for a lock for wine bottles. The only thing that I could find was a lock for wine bottles that were for children. And I was like, well, that's not going to work because then I'll know the code. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't find this thing online. And it wasn't even a red flag. I was like, oh, this just like doesn't exist. Like, yeah. And then I was like, maybe I shouldn't, maybe that should be my new business. Like, yeah. no, <laughs> Christina, go to a meeting. So that was one thing. And then the other thing I would do was, oh my God, I, I, it's been so long since I remember this stuff. I would go to the wine store or I'd order on Uber Eats like 15 minutes before they closed. So that way I couldn't go back. And then if I knew I had like something big in the morning, I would pour half the bottle of wine down the, oh, down wow. the sink because I knew I had no control. Those are two things. I think those yeah. are the, the top ones. I'm sure there's many others, but yeah, That's, off my rocker. A lot, like I can so relate. I'm I'm laughing so much with you, not at you. But, but I mean, I did feel free because it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually can't believe, like you had the like the the foresight to pour half of it down. I don't know if I ever could have done that. But I was the same. Like if there was alcohol in the house, and I was like, I knew I had to go to bed. I couldn't go to bed knowing that there was still an empty bottle or uh, sorry like same. a half empty bottle like it was it would just like it was that mental obsession right yeah and I tried the hard liquor thing too because I was always a red wine girl so I was like okay maybe if I don't have any red wine maybe if I only have like a like a cute cocktail cart cute cocktail cart until <laughs> until it's so not. dangerous right yeah. yes and the yeah. same I started like by the end it was for me it was vodka mm-hmm. and I would buy like a like a half bottle because I knew that if I had the whole bottle in the house, right, we just said I would yeah. drink it. So I would mm-hmm. have a half bottle, but then by the time I finished that, it wouldn't be enough. And then I'd get on Deliveroo or Uber Eats or whatever yeah. it was in Australia at the time and yeah. then order the bottle of wine and mm-hmm. ugh, it was just – and I used to always yeah. find that I um, when I was drinking hard liquor, mm-hmm. I would do more physical damage to myself. I would fall down a lot more. Totally. Like black eyes, cracked totally. head, all that kind of crazy stuff. And yet yeah. still – couldn't possibly be the alcohol that was the problem, no, right? No, it was <laughs> the that relationship or that. Yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. right. So I didn't. Yeah. Eat, I didn't eat enough. Totally yeah, exactly. every single night. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, yeah, so 100%. Christina, your sobriety date is the twelfth of April, twenty twenty-one. But you mentioned that it was a couple of months prior when you were in Tulum that you had, you know, your spiritual experience or your moment of realization. Can you guide me through what the two months looked like? between that moment and then actually getting sober on April, 2021. Yeah. I started therapy like pretty much immediately when I got back from Mexico. And I think I needed that sort of like warm up to it. I will say though, that obviously in the last two months, I didn't cut back. I drank like way more because I was like, well, the end is coming. So I got to get it all in. (laughs) So those two months were like therapy, drinking more at the same time. And then in April, I was at home with my family. And that's, I got, I like my heart breaks thinking back to that time with my mom. I remember just sitting down with her and I was like, what is the path forward? Because everybody, my parents knew for years that I had a problem. And so we were trying to figure out like, does rehab makes sense? Should we just do therapy? And I decided not to do rehab because of 
work and needing to show up online, which is, you know, I mean, it worked out, but that's sad. So got into weekly therapy. I actually didn't go to meetings um, when I first got sober. It was purely therapy, reading a lot. There was like an app called Reframe that really helped me. I was doing like daily check-ins, the therapist on there. And then I finally stopped drinking. I remember the the last day was my ex-boyfriend and I were flying back from Florida to New York and it was at this airport and our flight was delayed like six hours. And obviously the only thing to do when your flight's delayed is six hours is drink. Absolutely. Duh. Mm -hmm. And then I woke up the next morning and I stopped drinking. And here we are. Wow. So talk me through, you know, we often talk about like the 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Mm -hmm. Was that predominantly therapy at the time? When did you start going to meetings? Um, I only started going to meetings recently and that's another thing we can talk about. But the first 30, 60, 90 was very much a lot of therapy reading about addiction helped me a lot. Like reading about the neuroscience of addiction, I think was like just so helpful for me because it made me feel less crazy and it made me understand like the science behind cravings and the reason why I felt like shit and how my dopamine was going to like balance out and just like the hedonic set point. Like I learned about all of these things that were so helpful for me for getting through that time period. But the first 90 days were was very much just like survival. Like I didn't see a single friend other than my ex-boyfriend for 90 days. I didn't go to any dinners and go to any parties. I took baths every night to try to call my nervous system. (laughs) Like it was really just Mm -hmm. like survival. And I think that looking back, I'm not sure why I didn't, I didn't go to AA. I think that there was probably some resistance there, probably fear, probably lack of acceptance that probably didn't come until around six months. Hmm. And what was the fear coming up for you? I think that it was, I'm not like the other people in AA. I don't think Hmm. I quite understood the broad, the broadness of people who go to AA at the time. I had like a, that's the thing. I had a, a picture of somebody who goes to AA and that was the biggest thing that I think held one of the biggest things that held me back from sobriety and admitting that I was an alcoholic was because I wasn't like these other people. And alcoholics don't look like me. And when I was looking Mm -hmm. for information on YouTube, it would be like an old 60-year-old man talking about, you know, when he got sober in like 1970. And I just didn't see anybody that looked like me. And I'm kind of going in like a a circle here. But I think that was one of like the biggest things that inspired me to actually share my story online was because when I was looking for information, there really wasn't very much that I could find. So that was probably one of the biggest reasons. And then also just not being ready to admit to myself yet what I yeah. didn't have control over. Yeah. Cause it is quite daunting going in mm-hmm. there and, and looking at the steps on the wall and, yeah. you know, even just standing up and identifying in a room full of strangers can be incredibly overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It's still overwhelming. I just only recently started going to meetings and yeah, I don't want to jump ahead too far into the conversation, but I think there is like something to be said about the maintenance of sobriety over time, because I'll be three years sober in April, but this past year, especially the last six months was so challenging for me because I just wasn't putting sobriety first. And I think a lot of people think like, oh, as soon as you stop drinking, like everything else will be fine, but there's Mm. so much maintenance. And that's why I'm actually going to meetings now. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Oh, I, I completely agree with you. So I'm coming up to four. We're really close. I'm coming up to four in mm-hmm. February. And mm. my recovery journey has certainly not been linear. I think the obsession around alcohol and the cravings and the desire to want to drink, that was all removed around the six-month mark. Yep. Same. At about a year, I had an emotional bottom, went through a really difficult time, and there was one day in this whole time that I thought I was going to pick up a drink. And thank goodness, you know, I had enough of the tools to put into place to, to not do that. But then again, at two years sober, I had another emotional bottom where like I was doing some crazy stuff to try yeah. and self-soothe. I, you know, yeah. basically anything but pick up a drink, yep. um, <laughs> you know, and like yeah. I can thankfully say that the last 12 months have been really beautiful and really amazing. So it, it you know, for anyone listening along, like it's certainly not linear. We don't go from point A to point B in a, point B in a straight line. And like you said, to your point, that daily maintenance is so, so important. We'll get there in just a moment. But I'd love to know what were some of the things that you started to experience within yourself that made you want to stay at this? Because it's not the easy path. Sobriety is not an easy journey, but the payoff is so, so worth it. So what were some of the things for you, Christina, that made you want to stay sober? And do you mean in the last six months or just sort of generally? From the, from the day one that you started, ah, okay. like what were some of those oh, yeah. things that you started to notice? I mean, everything got better. <laughs> just like literally everything got better. I was able to like go to the gym and eat healthy. And I started seeing positive changes in my body. My skin got better. My hair got better. I had so much time in the day. Like I just remember one day being like, is this the amount of time that everyone else has been having? <laughs> like being able to wake up at like seven and I'm like, I ran like five errands today. I went to the gym. I got so much done. You know, like I just, there were two years of my life where all I was doing was just like working and drinking, like just miserable existence. So a lot of time back into my day, which then I could pour into making friends, taking care of my physical health. And then obviously just the mental health aspect of things as well, like building back my confidence and starting to do a ton of work in therapy on like where all of this started how to regulate myself emotionally, how to like get to know my patterns and choose to do differently. Like all that stuff is really, really difficult at first and it's still difficult, but like the payoff is just enormous. Exited my relationship that I was in, which obviously at the time didn't feel wonderful, but was like the best thing in the long term. And everything, everything's better. How did you navigate that sober? Because I, I went through a divorce at, at a year sober and, oh, my mm-hmm. goodness, feeling the feelings and not oh having anything God. to blunt the edges. Whew. Feelings are a lot. <laughs> They're a lot, right? <laughs> They're a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that actually with my drinking in the last, like, six months in my relationship, I want to say, I think I was ignoring looking at how our relationship was not working by numbing with alcohol and using that as like a crutch to sort of avoid the reality of the situation. And my ex is an amazing person, like nothing but good wishes for him, but just, it wasn't a match long-term and both of us kind of knew that. And I just remember like going through the breakup and being in therapy. She was just like, you got to feel everything. And I'm like, Oh my God, healthy coping mechanisms. So I cried a lot I let myself feel, let myself process. I relied a lot on friends. I journaled like every day. I took myself to a little retreat in Tulum. (laughs) Um, That helped a lot, a lot of meditation and all that stuff. 
and spend a lot of time like alone as well, like pouring love back into myself and focusing on myself again and seeing that like this was, this is just like a, you know, a part of a, a stepping stone to where I need to go and what are the things that I can learn from it and trust in, you know, the universe's plan. Mm, that's beautiful. So you said the last six months in particular, there's been a lot of learning and a lot of growth. And you mm-hmm. also made the decision to move to LA, as you mentioned at the top of the show, that's happened within the last year, right? So yeah, d- did the move influence the, the growth and mm-hmm. how has that all been as an experience and a process? Yeah. So I moved to LA in, about a year ago uh, after being in New York for a while. And I think that that decision was more of sort of a lifestyle decision. Like the quality of life in LA is just so much better than New York. I feel like New York kind of only contributes to my very like hustle, hustle, work all the time mentality. And it doesn't necessarily have like the balance that I'm looking for at this point in my life. Whereas LA is much more focused on wellness. Most people around me in Venice, at least, don't drink. The focus is on like hiking early on a Sunday morning. And there's just so much more focus on being active and health and stuff. The last six months that were really difficult, I don't think had anything to do necessarily with the move. It was more Mm -hmm. the fact that my therapist told me really early on in sobriety that if I don't make sobriety my priority, I will go back to drinking or I'll go back to old habits. And I think that for the first two years of sobriety, I had this mentality of, I got this, like, I'm just going to therapy. I'm not going to AA. I don't think about drinking. You know, I never, after the first six months, like you said, I've never really had a craving, but the thing with like recovery practices and mental health practices is not necessarily like a deterrent to not drink. It's just maintaining like emotional sobriety, like making good life Mm. decisions and focusing on your emotional health and I that I got this ego mentality just really screwed me over and I felt myself for a bit making old decisions like specifically with like unhealthy relationships like with men mainly that a few other things as well but just felt myself like reverting back to old 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 stuff and then it hit me in like December, really, when we had this interview scheduled, that was like, oh my God, something is not right. Like, what am I doing? And so I had to really like connect back to like the foundation of like, if sobriety and if recovery, and if my mental health is not the foundation, the number one priority, everything else is going to fall apart. And mm. that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. I have gone through really similar experiences along the journey where, you know, because the beautiful thing about sobriety is you get this big, beautiful life given back to you or given to you for perhaps the first time. And then what can be really insidious about the nature of addiction is that all of a sudden you think, well, I'm good now because I've got all the things and, you know, I've got the partner and I've got the house or I've got the job or whatever it was, the things that your heart desired. And then all of a sudden you've got it, that you start to put that first. And then sure enough, over time, you spoke about it beautifully, your emotional sobriety starts to waver a little bit. And then you move further and further away from your recovery. And then all of a sudden you fall back into the person that was living a life who needed to drink to cope with life. And that's what we're trying to avoid, right? We want to stay on this path of spiritual spiritual fitness. So can we get a little more specific for somebody who's maybe not sober, but is like, what are they talking about needing to put it first? What does it actually look like? Yeah. Um, so for me, like, and this is an AA thing that I haven't necessarily gotten into, but I know 
this is something I just do personally, is just really taking constant inventory of mm-hmm. my thoughts and my behaviors. And I did that pretty consistently in the first like year and a half of sobriety of every morning, like first of all, doing my meditation and just like connect inward, turn my focus inward, but then also, you know, writing out my intentions for the day. And at the end of the day, looking back and being like, how did I live in alignment with my highest self? And what were the ways that I didn't? And taking inventory of like the way that my thoughts and patterns are holding me back. So that's one thing is like the journaling. And then it's also Mm. taking the focus away from self as well and making sure that I'm like connecting with my community, with other sober people, spending time with friends, getting outside of myself, doing little selfless acts throughout the day, just like not putting so much attention on, you know, me, me, me all the time, getting back into therapy, not, not surprisingly when my mental health, when everything, when the, when the, what's it called? Wheels came off the bus was when I decided I didn't need to go to therapy anymore, <laughs> which is like around July. I think the last year. I get it. I get it. I yeah. get it do you think it's like, like you, it's almost like you just don't want to look at it. It's like, oh, this totally. is so uncomfortable. So I'm just going to yeah. pretend that I don't need to. Exactly. And, you know, meanwhile, life is just spiraling more and more and more and more. And it's like, yeah, oh, exactly. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I'm exactly. just going to put my attention over here and not look at it for a little while longer, hoping it'll sort itself out, which it never does. <laughs> which it did not. Wheels came off the bus immediately. <laughs> so getting back into therapy and also realizing that like I am at a point now where working the steps and being in an actual 12-step program will be very helpful for me and actually just like prioritizing that. I think that's been the biggest reason I haven't gone to meetings as much as I should have is that my life is so busy. I'm working a lot. I have friends. I'm trying to like date and, you know, find a partner. And I'm like, when could I possibly have time for meetings? Right. But it's reframing and it's realizing that's, that's the priority because if that's not locked in then all of that other stuff falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. So you just touched on it. I'd love to ask you a little bit Mm -hmm. more. What's it been like dating in sobriety? (laughs) You know what I've learned (laughs) from dating in sobriety? Tell me. It's only been positive to be honest with you. So I've learned that other people do not care as much about drinking as I do. And that I've not met a single guy that has been like, oh, that's going to be a problem. Or like, oh, it's weird you don't drink. Like, I would say 99% of the guys I've ever been out with or dated have been like, this is actually very refreshing to not have to drink. And so that's been one thing. I don't know. Maybe it's different in like Australia versus LA where LA is not quite so like focused on drinking as my general impression of Australia. That's been one thing. And then also just the ability to like emotionally tune in to somebody else and tune in with my own body without alcohol involved is really, really a superpower of dating because I feel like if I was drinking when I was dating, even if I was a normal drinker, it kind of dulls your sense of like, how does my nervous system feel with this person? Do I actually Mm -hmm. like this person? And then, you know, obviously not having something to turn to when I'm like, anxious with dating has been a lot of my work in therapy as well. Cause I'm typically more anxious with dating and in, in life in general. And so not having that has been like another kind of layer of things I need to look at, but mm. overall it's been positive. And what about, and if this is too much, you don't need to share, <laughs> but what about, you know, those things that you alluded to that you're working on with your therapist mm-hmm. around learning more about you and your old behaviors in relationship, the things that you Mm -hmm. used to do, like what have you become aware of and what are you able to let go of and step into as a woman in sobriety who's dating? Yeah, I would say there's been so much, but I think as like an overall thing, 
not surprisingly, as somebody who struggled with addiction, my relationship with my self-worth and with what I'm And I think that even though I was able to be more confident and self-assured individually with men, that's taken a little bit more rewiring to be like, oh, like I deserve way more than this and not operating from the belief of something is inherently wrong with me. Because I think in dating, when you obviously have that belief, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop you don't trust anybody. <laughs> you, you know, you're just anxious. You're, you're waiting for the person to find out, you know, like who you truly are. Right. Mm-hmm. And reframing my relationship with myself of like, oh no, I am worthy of, of like the very best. And how can I get to a point where like, I'm expecting people to show up for me in a certain way? How can I raise my standards? How can I, you know, align my dating experiences with like, these are all the ways that I love myself and I need that from you too. So it's been quite the journey. I'm very happy with where I've been in the last few months, but with everything, it's just rewiring stuff and it's hard, you know, when something's so ingrained in you. (laughs) It's so hard, isn't it? I, yeah, I can really relate to this. So as I mentioned, I, you know, went through a marriage separation when I was a year sober. And then a year after that, I, I, met and fell in love with my partner who I'm with today and he's another sober human. It was really interesting in the beginning, Christina, because the way he showed up was not what I was used to and it's not what I thought I even really wanted. Like I think I was attracted and drawn to some pretty unhealthy characteristics and that's what, because I'd done that over and over and over again, that's actually what felt safe even though it wasn't safe. And so it really took actually some incredible guidance from my sponsor and my therapist to help me, you know, like we learn in the program, take contrary action and do the opposite and actually, well, hang on a minute, maybe this isn't feeling normal, but maybe, you know, this isn't about what you want. It's about what you need and learning just to allow myself to sit and not run, you know, but like I was such somebody who would cut and run because of the fear of being hurt and just actually like trusting and, and applying these principles in all our affairs, literally, even when you don't want to. It was like, I, I was sharing about this recently on a solo episode. I'm so, so grateful that I had that guidance and that I was able to do that because, you know, it's it's the healthiest, most loving relationship I've ever been in. But it certainly didn't feel normal or natural to begin with because I had to let go of all those maladaptive coping strategies that I had brought in from old relationships. So yeah. Because a lot of that is like, is safe, you know, like all that kind of toxic stuff, even though it's very much not safe, feels the most safe because it's what I've, you know, maybe both of us have been repeatedly exposed to. And so it's like when you have somebody, and I met somebody recently actually, who just shows up like above and beyond. And I remember talking to my therapist about this. I'm like, why am I like, I'm confused why he's showing up this way. You know, yeah, and it's you only because don't trust it. no, not at all. I'm like looking for something, and it's because yeah. like I'm embodying what I deserve now individually, and so that's only going to be reflected back to you and whoever you meet. But it's confusing, and you—that's where like the sabotage comes in because it's like if you're not willing to look at those patterns, you could blow up something really good. Absolutely, I actually remember my brother telling me. I've got an older brother, and he shared with me once, you know, Ash, the more work you put into yourself, the more you grow, you will attract someone at the same vibration. So, and I often share this with women that I work with who are single and they're waiting. And I always say, you know, 
see this as a good thing because every moment that you, you, you they're not in your presence, every moment that you're not finding them and you're working on you consciously and actively working on you, you're raising your vibration, which means the person that you eventually meet that does come in is going to be of a higher vibration as well. Exactly. So It's so cool. But, it's also scary though, because the more work you do on yourself, it's harder to, you know, you're narrowing down your <laughs> pool of people, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no longer settling. That can be a scary yeah. thought as well. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, it's that whole saying of like, when you stop looking there, they'll be, mm-hmm. it's like, truly having that love that self-love to be like I'm okay on my own in fact I I I'm I'm great on my own and somebody you know it's not about being a half being made a whole with with someone in a relationship you are your own fully formed self and that person is just a beautiful addition into creating a gorgeous life together exactly couldn't agree more yeah love that so coming on to three years of sobriety which is so incredible I mean, this is a big question. So let let whatever well, comes up first be okay. the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What, what have you learned about yourself that you didn't know three years ago? Ooh, the immediate thing that's popping into my head, other than sort of maybe like the general cliche of like I'm, you know, more powerful than I ever thought I was, I would say, <laughs> say I'm very grateful that I – I'm an alcoholic because Mm. first of all, you learn so much about yourself and just develop like a spiritual experience that the average person just will never have because they're never forced to. But also because I realized that there are certain characteristics I have that while they were maladaptive in the more addiction sense, they've also helped me a lot in life. So like an example of this would be I have an all or nothing personality that's helped me a lot in entrepreneurship and growing a business, you know, wasn't maybe the most helpful when it came to alcohol. (laughs) I'm super, uh, what's it called? Like resourceful. And that is also something that I think a lot of addicts have in common or, you know, they use it in a not great way, but I'm very resourceful in business and that's helped me a lot. I am very much a leader. I'm very persuasive. I'm very good at rallying people together. And on the dark side, that can be manipulation that I don't use anymore, but obviously in that specific context. And so it's just made me like grateful really for, for who I am and the kind of duality of, of who I am as a person, the dark and the light. That's beautiful. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Christina, we have a closing question that I love to ask all of my guests here on the show, and I'm going to share that with you now. What are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live your life today happy, joyous, and free? I would say my new non-negotiable is sobriety and recovery come first as the foundation of everything else that my life includes. I would say that community and friendship is extremely important. And I need to always remind myself to lean on that because I have a tendency to isolate and kind of the cliche of just being kind because everyone is going through something, whether, you know, everybody's behind the smile in some context in their Mm -hmm. life, whether it's addiction or it's family troubles or relationship troubles or whatever it is, everybody is going through something and to just always operate from the perspective of like giving people the benefit of the doubt and spreading good energy and kindness. 
That is such a beautiful message to end on here today. Thank you so much, Christina. If people want to find out more about yourself and your incredible business, where should they go? Instagram is Christina Galbato, nice and basic. And then my company is Create Her Empire. And my website is the same, ChristinaGalbato.com. Amazing. I'll make sure I pop all of that in the episode show notes. Christina, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so, so much for being here today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me on. This is like one of my favorite conversations I've had about sobriety. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Lots of love. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about, and I'll be back next week. Until then.